The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes back on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him amongst themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. There is a very real sense in which we have waited uh, over two years at this point to get to this passage because all of Mark's gospel has been building slowly to this very morning, uh, Good Friday morning. And so we're, we're just going to dive right in. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 15, to the passage you just heard read. As I said, th- this, this morning we've arrived at the moment, uh, the moment that everything has been building toward. After three years of spectacular public ministry from Jesus, teaching, healing, feeding, loving, Judas has betrayed him, soldiers have arrested him, priests have slandered him, Caiaphas has condemned him, crowds have yelled, crucify him, and Pilate has sentenced him. This is the greatest tragedy in human history, the greatest tragedy unfolding in slow motion before our eyes. But it's also a tragedy that in actuality is ultimately a victory. Here's what I think is the main idea of Mark 15, 16 to 32. The main idea of this passage and and therefore of this message. The Messiah's throne was a Roman cross. He reigned from where he hung. The Messiah's throne was a Roman cross. He reigned from where he hung. 
we're going to think about this in three simple points. Mockery commenced. We'll see that in verses 16 to 20. Messiah crucified, verses 21 to 28. And mockery continued, verses 29 to 32. Mockery commenced. Messiah crucified. And mockery continued. First, mockery commenced. Verse 16. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. Don't picture three guys teasing Jesus in a corner. The, the term company refers to a battalion, at least 6,000 men. So, so imagine that as a few soldiers are leading Jesus away from Pilate's presence into the palace, they round up a ton of their buddies to have some fun at this guy's expense. Verse 17, they put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. They're dressing him in the color of royalty. They're, they're cramming, jamming these long, thick, uh, sharp thorns into his skull. They're falling to the ground with dramatic mock veneration. Hail, King of the Jews! And then we read in verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and then put his own clothes on him. Pay attention to details. They took off the purple robe and then put his clothes on him, which means they hadn't just thrown the robe on top of him. They had, on top of his clothes, they had stripped him completely naked to humiliate him. Then Mark says, they led him out to crucify him. They led him out to crucify him. They are not, uh, they, these bullies are, are not Pharisees or Sadducees or religious scribes who hate Jesus. These are Roman soldiers. They're not waiting for a Messiah. In fact, they don't have anything whatsoever personally against Jesus. And yet they're willing to pile on with the most vicious ridicule. Friends, Mark is zooming in his camera to give us a little taste, a, a little picture of the nature of all human sin. You don't have to realize the magnitude of evil in order to commit it. In fact, the nature of evil is not thinking it's a big deal. That's part of what it is. The nature, the deceptive nature of evil is not thinking it's a big deal. But every time we commit it, we're behaving like little mockers. We're behaving like little mockers. Do you know what, what sin is? It's, it's hearing Jesus make eye contact with you and seeing him make eye contact with you and hear, hearing him say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and responding by spitting in his face. Listen to, to this. So, so, so you may be thinking at this point, because uh, I'm, I'm aware, we, we've just dove right in, okay? It's, it's dark it's ominous. It's heavy from the get-go. 
And I'm, I'm daring to compare you to these Roman soldiers who are hitting him and spitting on him and mocking him. And I'm saying that's every sin in miniature. And you might just, just think, okay, preacher, I, <laughs> I get that we're in church and all, but, but that's a little dramatic. But it's not. It's not. Do you realize what sin is? Not according to your preferences, not according to your sensibilities, not according to the spirit of the age. Do you realize what sin is according to God's word? It's not just a heavenly parking ticket. It's not just outward naughtiness, the the occasional moral slip up. If that's how you think of it this morning, then respectfully, you don't yet understand the horror and magnitude of your sin because you don't yet understand the glory and majesty of God. Listen to the way John Piper describes human sin and see how it matches with the way you think of your sin. Listen to this description of human sin, every sin, including yours. Quote, sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. The failure to treasure God above all is the ultimate outrage of the universe. If you are not in Christ, this morning. If you are not in Christ, by grace through faith, you are still in Adam. If you are not in Christ because of faith, you are still in Adam because of sin. And your sin is not tame. We would be lying to you. We would be wasting your time and having come to church this morning, and this is true if you're an unbeliever, this is true if you're a believer, we would be wasting your time if we told you your sin was not absolutely serious. Romans 8, 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. Hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it. The Bible says that your innermost nature is not indifferent to God. It says it's hostile, resistant, which means there's no amount of good deeds or self-help or therapy that can reverse or fix or undo your deepest, most fundamental problem, and that is your attitude, which is bent against the God who made you. And hear me clearly, just because you don't act obviously hostile, and there's a really good chance you don't, the fact that you're in church probably means you don't, but just because you don't act obviously hostile doesn't mean you're not. 
You may feel merely indifferent, but even that indifference to the God of the universe is an expression of hostility. You don't want him. At the end of the day, you do not want him to be king of your life. And friend, here's the most chilling thing about this scene right here in Mark 15. People falling to their knees around Jesus, paying homage to him. What's chilling about that scene? It's a preview. Philippians chapter two, and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, here it is, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These Roman soldiers crowded around Jesus on their knees before him have no idea what they're doing. They're speaking better than they know. They're acting better than they know. This pathetic Jewish pretender is indeed the king of the world. He's come this time in weakness. They're fortunate he's come this time in weakness, but he's coming again in glory. He will be on that last day when he splits the skies in return. He will be wearing crowns and a robe and every knee in the universe is gonna bow before him. You will bow before King Jesus. The only question, friend, is will you humble yourself and do it now and bow to him as your savior and your redeemer and your friend, or will you pridefully wait and kick the can down the road so that it becomes too late and you find yourself bowing to him as your judge? As I've said before, there is an appointment with the living God on your calendar, your personal calendar that you didn't put there. The day is coming when you will face his wrath, which you deserve because of your rebellion. That day is coming unless, unless you bow to him now in worship and trust. It's not too late. And that's the amazingly unique thing about Christianity. It's not too late because you don't have to go through a series of steps. You don't have to take an elaborate religious pilgrimage. You can be forgiven today. No matter who you are or what you've done, no matter how messed up your life was when you came here this morning, you can walk out of here right with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. To paraphrase the Westminster Confession of Faith, no sin is too small to deserve damnation. No sin that you've ever committed is too small to deserve damnation. But also, no sin is too great to bring damnation on those who repent. You've never done something too grievous for God to forgive. If you would just simply come and bow to him, not in mock homage, but in true, humble faith. Mockery commenced. Number two, Messiah crucified. Messiah crucified. 
verse 21, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Jesus isn't capable of carrying it. We, we see the human nature of Jesus. One person, two natures. This is the human nature of Jesus in stark relief, on full display. He can't carry the cross because he's just been beaten. Not just by these scoffing soldiers, but also in Pilate's presence back in verse 15. This Roman practice of flogging or scourging well, wasn't just a matter of getting slapped around a little bit. Some didn't even survive it. Soldiers would use a leather whip with shards of metal and bone inside of it and just pound and pound and pound a criminal's back. Flesh would be ripped off in chunks to the point where you could sometimes even see the bones. Jesus is in bad shape right now, and he's not even at the cross. He can barely stand, much less carry his own instrument of torture. And so the, the, the guards look around and they, they grab this random passerby, Simon, and they, they force him to do the job. Before we follow Simon and Jesus up the hill, I have a question about something here in verse 21. Look, look at it again, the first part of it. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, here's my question. Why in the world mention those two sons? I mean, Mark is the shortest of all four Gospels for a reason. He is incredibly sparing with details. Why mention Alexander and Rufus who don't feature anywhere else? They're not characters in the story. So what do their names add? Well, here's the answer. To the original reader's, Mark is saying, hey, if you want to check with some eyewitness sources, go talk to these two guys. You know who they are and how to find them. Mark's saying, I'm not making this stuff up. I'm naming my sources. They're still around. You can go check with them. The reason I take a moment to highlight this is because all of us have friends and neighbors who might respect Jesus, but essentially they think that maybe with the exception of the Sermon on the Mount and some other things that they like that Jesus said or did, that the Gospels, as we now have them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four biographies of Jesus are essentially legends that have developed over time. There's just too much theological embellishment in them to be recorded history. But friends, that perspective, however convenient, is mistaken. The gospel according to Mark was circulating publicly, circulating publicly within two decades of the events of that first Easter weekend. In other words, too soon for unchecked legendary elements to have been able to creep in. And so far from hiding something, Mark is actually inviting inquiry. I don't know if this is how you think of Christians or think of the Bible, but Mark was certainly not afraid of your questions. He is inviting inquiry. He's naming his sources, eyewitnesses who can verify or falsify the things written. Don't underestimate. As you, as you engage with your non-Christian friends and neighbors, don't underestimate. Don't mistrust the historical reliability of God's word. Verse 23. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha 
which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which was a kind of painkiller, but he didn't take it. See, he's, he's not trying in any way to escape the full pain of what he came to endure. Verse 24, and they crucified him. That's it. That's Mark's description. No details about the cross or the nails or the spear or Jesus writhing in pain, though certainly he was. A Roman crucifixion was a famously cruel form of torture reserved for enemies of the state and the utter scum of society. It was not a topic for polite conversation. It would be like telling a Holocaust joke at a picnic today. As one scholar put it, crucifixion was one of the most degrading forms of punishment ever conceived by human perversity, even in the eyes of the pagan world. Many Romans even called for it to be banned because it was so barbaric. Here's how one author vividly describes it. Quote, shredded flesh against unforgiving wood. Iron stakes pounded through bone and racked nerves, joints wrenched out of socket by the sheer dead weight of the body. Public humiliation before the eyes of family, friends, and the world. That was death on a cross. It's no wonder nobody talked about it. It's no wonder parents hid their children's eyes from it. The cross was a loathsome thing. And the one who died on it was loathsome too, a vile criminal whose only use was to hang there as a putrid, decaying warning to anyone else who might follow his example. That's how Jesus died. And yet Mark condenses all of that into this passing phrase, and they crucified him. Why does he do this? Well, the reason is he wants our attention focused on something other than the physical pain. Because that, though it was horrible, was not ultimate. Christ's ultimate pain was spiritual. His ultimate pain was invisible to eyes of the flesh, even invisible to the soldiers who were close enough to him to get, some, to get splattered with some of his sweat in his blood. In fact, those soldiers are not even thinking about his agony They're not looking up to him, getting splattered on the face. Their eyes are in the dirt. Middle of verse 24, dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. As the creator of the universe, the eternal son of God incarnate is hanging there, writhing in pain, suffocating to death on a cross, a poker game breaks out beneath him. Verse 25, It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Again, the irony of that inscribed mockery on his placard, king of the Jews, the irony is that it's absolutely true except he's not just the king of the Jews. He's also the king of the world, not just the hope of Israel, but also the hope of humanity, of all who are lost in Adam. And speaking of Adam, 
What was he doing way back in Genesis 3 after rebelling against God? He was hiding behind a tree, naked, covered in shame. What is Jesus doing? He's hanging on a tree, naked, conquering shame. What was the symbol of the curse in Genesis 3? Thorns and thistles. What is Jesus wearing on his head? In order to remove the curse for us, Jesus must bear it in our place. We heard it at the beginning of the service in our call to worship, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us as it is written, Deuteronomy 21. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And because this happened in history, because the curse of God fell on Jesus, the blessing of God can fall on you. But even as he's hanging there on that tree, bearing that curse, suffocating to death, the jeering, the mocking, the deriding won't let up. Point three, mockery continued. Mockery continued. Verse 29, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. We heard the slander already in Caiaphas's courtroom, which apparently had spread. People are still misquoting him. Jesus never said he would destroy the temple. Rather, he looked at the religious leaders in John 2 and said, you're going to destroy the temple, my body, but in three days, I'm going to raise it up. In other words, you are looking at the temple to end all temples. The final, ultimate meeting place between God and man. The tabernacle was about me. The temple was about me. It was all pointing to me. If you want to know God, worship God, come to God, all you have to do is come to me. So ironically, they're mocking him. They're, they're, they're mocking this, the, the, the true part of his prophecy while it's being fulfilled. Do, do you notice that? In fact, they're helping him fulfill it. The embodied temple is being destroyed just as he said it would. It's being destroyed by them as they speak. But again, to eyes of flesh, to eyes of flesh, all they can see is weakness. If you're so mighty, come down and save yourself. Impress us. And of course he could have. You realize that, don't you? He could have made the request and legions of angels would be swooping down to rescue him. As Greg Gilbert puts it in his book, Who is Jesus? Quote, 72,000 angels stood ready at a moment's notice, at a whisper from his lips to bring Jesus back to heaven in glory, to the praise and worship of billions upon billions of angels who would have honored him forever as the perfectly just, perfectly righteous son of God. But he didn't call them. He let them stand on the edge of heaven, wondering at the whole scene wondering at the whole scene because he and his father were determined to save their fallen people.
people. This is why the apostle Peter says that the gospel is something, the gospel, the very gospel that you have to say to an elder in order to join this church, the very gospel that we gather every Sunday to sing and read about and hear preach, the gospel that we've built our lives on, Peter says it's something into which angels long to look. See, angels know God as creator. They worship God. They have for, for ages and ages worshiped God as king, but only we can see him and know him and experience him as savior. Another author goes so far as to say, I mean, just think about this. Quote, when the angels witnessed the cross, they learned more about God and his attributes than in all the previous actions he had ever committed. Verse 31. In the same way that chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. <laughs> he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Have you noticed throughout the passage how prophecies from the Hebrew scriptures are just piling up one on top of the other being fulfilled at once? Isaiah 50 verse 6, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I didn't hide my face from mocking and spitting. Psalm 22 7, we heard it in the in the scripture reading earlier, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen: they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Psalm 69, 21, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Isaiah 53, 12, he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Everything is playing out according to God's sovereign plan A. Plan A, he's choreographing every frame of every scene to ensure that the ancient promises would come true. As someone put it, it's almost like the Roman soldiers went to their post that morning and got their commands directly from the book of Isaiah. And sure enough, the derision is whizzing past in all directions from the Roman soldiers, from those passing by, from the chief priests, from the teachers of the law, even from rebels on other crosses. There are a thousand differences between those groups that I just named. And yet right now they are one united front in opposition to Jesus Christ. Do you see what Mark is doing? He's giving us yet another picture of humanity in miniature. Every kind of person because of sin is hostile to God. Every kind, from criminals to priests. As one pastor reflected, prisons and churches have more in common than many people might think. By the way, kids, it's important to realize that being in rebellion against God doesn't always look like being a terrible person. I could probably go even a little further in saying being in rebellion against God usually doesn't look like being a terrible person. You can look like a great person 
You can say all the yes ma'ams and yes sirs in the world. You can wait your turn. You can love your siblings. You can obey the first time. You can even manage to completely please your teachers, your parents, your pastors, and still be in rebellion against your creator. And one of the sure signs that you're rebelling against him is that you feel somewhere deep in your heart that he either should accept you or will accept you because you're a pretty good kid. And if that's basically what your heart is saying, look at, look at me, God. I, I know I'm not perfect, but look at me, especially in comparison to those other kids. I, I, I deserve you, especially compared to them. If that's the, the voice of your heart, the, the, the true state of your heart, then no matter how many Sundays in your life you've been to church, no matter how many worship songs or Bible verses you have memorized, you don't yet understand the beginning of the gospel. Because the gospel is irrelevant to good people. The gospel is irrelevant to good people. The gospel is for bad people. And only when you come to realize that bad people are not those other kids, their poor parents and teachers, but you. Only when you realize that you deserve not heaven, but hell, can you then hear, gladly hear good news from heaven's king that he came to seek and to save not the good, but the lost. He came for those who are spiritually and morally sick. I mean, kids, think about it. If you're incredibly sick, you, you, don't, you don't get well at home. You don't, you don't get well at home in order to go to the hospital. You go to the hospital in order to get well. And, and likewise, you don't, you don't get better in order to save yourself. You get saved in order to get better. And even when you are saved and getting better, improving in moral character, that's not what's making God love you. He, he does, it's not like he says, okay, I'll do my part and forgive your sins. Now you do your part and prove to me that you were worth it. I showed my love for you on the cross. Now you show your love for me and then we'll talk. No. Salvation is a free gift. But it's a dangerous gift in the sense that if you try to contribute to it, you ruin it. You ruin it if you try to contribute to it. Children and teens, if, if you have any questions about what I'm saying, the difference between being a well-behaved religious kid and being a Christian, please talk to your parents about this. If they're members of this church, there's nothing they would rather discuss with you this afternoon than this, how you can step into a personal friendship with God through Jesus Christ, his son, simply through trusting in Christ alone. So here in this scene, we have all these various groups, diverse groups with little in common, but as I said, they are arrayed as one in opposition to Jesus. He's not dying to a chorus of gratitude, but to a chorus of mockery. And friends, we are not meant to keep a safe distance. We are not meant to come to a passage like this and start confessing the sins of others. We are meant to see our faces in the crowd. 
We sang it earlier, behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. It was our sin that put him there. But it was his love that kept him there. Even as all these mockers completely misunderstand what he's doing, completely miss it. The chief priests say, he saved others. No, he's saving others. Right now, stapled on a Roman cross, he's in the act of it, in the act of reconciling rebels to God. If he actually obliges their requests and comes down from the cross to save himself, every other human will be lost. In other words, he refuses to give them the miracle they're asking for so that he could give us all the miracle we are desperate for whether or not we realize it, the miracle he came for. Beloved, do you realize that in this moment 2,000 years ago, the history of everything, the history of the whole world, the destiny of all humanity was hanging on three Roman nails. All eternity hinges on the fact that God the Son came down from heaven, but didn't come down from the cross. What glory, what love, what compassion, what mercy. He left heaven when he could have stayed. And he stayed on the cross when he could have left. One thing that can confuse readers of Mark is that final line in verse 32. Those crucified with him, which we know from verse 27 is one guy on his right and another on his left. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. It's confusing because we know from Luke's account that one of them repented and said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, to which he said, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So how do we reconcile that scene with this one? Well, this is admittedly conjecture. We, we, we can't know for sure, but when we put the two accounts together, we see something that should deeply encourage us. Think about it. Jesus was on the cross for nearly six hours. That's a long time, more than enough time for someone to have a change of heart. I'm inclined to think that mid-morning, Jesus is being ridiculed by two criminals, but by early afternoon, it's down to one because the other has repented. And if this is in fact what happened, what happened, which I think is likely, then you know what that should do? That should not just encourage us personally, that should also encourage us specifically with respect to lost loved ones who seem to be cursing God even near the very end of their lives. So long as they have breath, it's not too late for them to repent. And we never know. We just don't. We never know what the Lord might have been pleased to do in someone's heart, even in their final moments, even if it's invisible to our eyes. Now, if you hear that and think, phew, 
This is a heavy sermon, but I liked that because that means I don't really have to get serious about God till my deathbed. Then you're missing the point. Friend, I'll just say, A, you, don't, you actually don't know when it'll be too late. And B, that's not the point. The lesson of the two thieves next to Jesus, you realize it's a lesson that it's a double-edged sword. It's a lesson that cuts both ways. I can't improve on the way the old Anglican bishop, J.C. Ryle, put it. One thief was saved that none might despair. Praise God, right? One thief was saved that none might despair, but only one that none might presume. I recently, as we, we conclude, I, I recently heard a story about a Sunday morning at a First Baptist church in a little Florida town several years ago. During the service, a, a bad storm swept through the town and lightning actually struck the church building. But the worshipers inside had no idea this happened. They, they, they didn't hear anything, see anything, feel anything. They just kept worshiping. But after the service, the chairman of the deacons walked up to the pastor and said, uh, Pastor, I just wanted you to know that lightning struck our church building in the middle of the service. To which the pastor, of course, said, uh, where? How, how bad's the damage? The deacon said, believe it or not, it hit that 20-foot cross on top of the building. Inside that cross, there was a lightning rod, which took the lightning and spread it to the ground, cast it to the ground. So pastor, even though we were hit, that cross did its job. And so there's no damage whatsoever. And beloved, you can have confidence and security this morning because you can know that 2,000 years ago, the cross did its job. Jesus absorbed and averted the wrath of God because as we saw in Gethsemane, when he stared down that awful cup, there was no other way. The cup that made him stagger, there was no other way. He did not leave the glories of heaven and come to earth to be born in a feeding trough, suffer hate, sweat blood, resist sin, get mocked, spit on, and beaten, and suffocate to death on a Roman cross only to be one of many ways to get to heaven. This is why he came. Don't ever reduce the Lord Jesus Christ to a sweet life coach who met an unfortunate end. He was not a victim. He was, though, he was what Mark has waited deliberately for 15 chapters to call him, finally, a king. And the reason Mark has waited is because the cross is his throne. He reigns from where he hangs. And beloved, when you've trusted this king to save you, guess what? you can start trusting him with everything else. If he took care of your greatest problem, you can trust him with every problem because the hands that are ordering your days, this is not just theological abstraction. This could change your life if you let it sink in. The hands that are ordering your days and guiding your storms were once nailed to a Roman cross. Every day this week, you can trust this Savior King. He won't leave you. He won't forsake you. Just look at his scars. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we want to come close 
to the cross. We, we want to come to the cross as quickly as we can, and we want to stay there as long as we can. Lord, we, we, we want to consider what the cross reveals about the horror and magnitude of our sin. Lord, we want to consider what the cross reveals about your holiness and justice and glory. And, oh, Lord, we want our hearts to be melted by what it reveals about your love. We thank you that you left heaven, but you didn't leave the cross. And therefore, we can enjoy the glories of heaven forevermore with you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.